Hi there, local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Accra, Ghana. And I always give a little bit of a weather update. I don't know why I became a weather woman, but whatever. I like it. Let's go with it. But I will say that the heat is on, folks, because I first got here about two weeks ago and it was still a bit of chill because the raining season, but now I can feel that the heat is now in my walls, in my house. So the evenings were a little bit cool, but now we got some proper heat. So that's the Accra weather barometer for today. And it's so interesting because my guest is familiar with these environs. And I wanna tell you all a, a quick story, something I will never forget. So years and years ago, I'm driving down Spintex Road for anyone who knows Accra very well. And at the time, if you come to Ghana now, Spintex is kind of trafficy, but nothing like what it used to be. And this was from my area. I live in a part of, I call it West, it is West Ham. I call it Accra East. But in any case, driving down the road and we're kind of at this, they call it the Coca-Cola roundabout area, right? So it's an interesting part of the road where there's like this section of cobble. It's crazy. And then obviously, I mean, now it's really messed up and they're going to fix it. Maybe who knows, but I'm driving next to this car and I look next to me and I'm like, I know that man. And it's so funny. He was like, oh my gosh. So we do the like, hi, you know, whatever, you know, I think this is before Facebook, but somehow we, you know, then became connected, but it was so wild because this is a person from my childhood, you know? So, so without any more talk, 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 let me get into it. So my next guest is the founder and chief visionary officer of Righteous Rage Institute. Born and raised in Northeast Denver, Colorado. He is a fellow East High School angel. Yay, we are the angels. He attended Howard University, the Mecca, which just last weekend hosted their annual epic homecoming. I've been seeing in the social media wires so much about that. So if you don't know about Howard's homecoming, get to know about Howard's homecoming. Shout out to all the Howard alumni who are in the audience and former guests. So later he traveled the world, spending a decade living in Africa, raising his family here in Ghana. He is a prolific writer, speaker, facilitator, communications professional who has been using his talents, experience, and skills to create and support stimulating, engaging, and innovative community initiatives that usher in social change. He is a community organizer dedicated to the pursuit of social equity, education, and healing justice for society's most vulnerable children, those black, brown, indigenous, and special needs, and also those living in poverty. And his work also includes organizing healing and learning journeys, consulting and coaching at the individual, community, national, and international levels for nonprofit, corporates, governments, public school districts, and higher learning institutions across the U.S. and five African nations. Mr. Hazera H. Soul Ashemu, welcome to the podcast. It is super, super exciting to be here. Yay! Thank you. Wonderful. So let me just ask before we get started. What do you remember that day when we were driving and I was like, hey, hi? What was going through your mind? Well, I think we're probably talking in the 2008, 2009. Um, I want to say it was, I, yeah, exactly. It was about then. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. So I was in the thick of it back in, in yeah. those days, you know, living in Ghana. I had, I had three children there. And I think when I saw you, 
it made me home, uh, homesick in the sense that when you live in Ghana for as long as I had been living there, and I had only traveled back once in those 10 years oh, to wow. America, uh-huh. it just was like a, a mind, you know, like, wow, like I did have another life before I, I, I came here. Right. Interesting. 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 Yeah. It, it threw me back. And then to know that. And when I saw you, it made me have such a deeper appreciation for who you were, because I had been living in your home country mm. for eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. When I mm-hmm. knew you as a child, I I couldn't have picked gone out on a map. Right. Uh, it just it right. wouldn't have registered to me in the same way. So it was. um it was a moment. Yeah. It was a moment. Yeah, yeah. It was so funny. And you know what's really funny about it is now that I live here, those kind of moments happen often. Like I'm here yeah. and I'm like, oh my gosh, hey, what are you doing here? That kind of thing. And it's so funny. Yeah. It's this that's yeah. the, that's global citizenship, guys. That's it really true. what it is. Yeah. It yeah, is yeah. Very true. So let's jump right in. And you kind of answered this, but let's just get a little deeper. So I ask you, yeah. where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Where am I from? I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. I'm third generation born here, raised here. When you say where am I local, I, I suspect you mean where am I currently or where do I consider home? Okay, let's say where, <laughs> <laughs> what feels the most local to you? Where do you feel the most like this is the place where I am right now? Costa Rica. Oh, I, I thought so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's where I feel local, but um, I really do. I, I love the the title of the podcast because it's so apropos for someone like me who is a world traveler mm-hmm. looking for spaces of home, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll dip into that further in the podcast, but I, I love the name just because it, it brings that that through. And I love this last question. It's a it's a very smart way to ask what is it that I do. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, wink, wink. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love it. So I am a community organizer and entrepreneur. Much of which Ghana was so uh, central to starting that journey. Uh, I started my entrepreneurial journey in Ghana, and so. These days, I do a lot of DEI training for small to medium scale nonprofits. And we also have a Afro-Indigenous healing center here, over 4,000 square feet, uh, dedicated to Afro-Indigenous healers, people in meditation, yoga, tai chi, herbal, herbalism, you name it, we have, we, we have it going on there. Nice. And we're in the process of build, building another healing center in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And so I wear quite a few hats just given the day and the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. I love it. So let's talk a little bit more about how you became this world traveler. So you're a third generation Denverite, and I'm sure by now, or I'm wondering if by now you have an understanding of where your, your family, where your roots were before. And and then how did how did this concept of being this moving energy around the world come about? I love the way you stated that too, moving energy around the world. So again, uh, as as you've stated and I've stated, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Uh, when I left East High School, we went to um, I, I, we went to Howard University. Howard University, I was a communications major, African studies minor. And so with that, I 
and, and having the father that I had, who was the head of the Denver Black Panther Party in the 60s and 70s, I had always had a romantic relationship with the continent of Africa, you know, through people like Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, people, uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame uh, Krumah, Kwame Ture, people that always kept it in the forefront of my mind. And so when I turned 29, I decided to visit Ghana and visited Ghana and fell in love with the country. Um, And it was also a time in the United States that was very scary in the sense that George Bush had just gotten elected the second, and we we weren't too much optimistic about what the um, political environment was going to be. Columbine shooting had happened just a Mm. couple of months into that, uh, which is hugely historic. But as you know, Florence, from being here, that's just a few miles away from east side of Denver, where I grew up. And we had two small children at the time. And so the social fabric also seemed tenuous. And so a combination of all those things set me off to Ghana with two children, a three-year-old and a one-year-old and a wife. And so we moved to Takarati, which uh, fell in love with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Stayed there for two years. From Takarati, we then moved to Abri, uh, about four houses down from Rita Marley, where my third child was born in the uh, hospital there. And the other, I would say about four or five years, we were co-located between Abri uh, and Accra uh, in the Jolu areas where um, I really you know, spent the most amount of time. And so between Jolu, Avri, and Takarati uh, is when I really fell in love and, and, and began this process of seeing myself as a global citizen and coming into my own in, in a lot of respects. I traveled often to Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and of, of course, um, went up to Kamasi and Tamale and all these different areas. And so it was it was through that experience uh, initially at, at at the age of 29 30 that i began seeing myself in a much more global context mhm mm-hmm. so you you decided to leave but what did you see yourself doing you know you're a communications major i'm assuming you had some kind of role so and you mentioned this was where your entrepreneurship came into play how, so how did you land and how did you sustain yourself for 10 years Ooh, juicy question. Mm. Juicy, juicy question. So I can't say what I what I really saw myself doing. What I saw myself not doing is I didn't want to be an expat that was working for one of the United States governmental institutions. Right. And I felt like already because I was an American that there was going to be quite a bit of social distance between myself and my my brothers and sisters in Ghana, already based upon being an American and then being considered Obruni. And so the last thing I, I wanted to do was then to become part of the American empire uh, there on, on the ground. And so I we fervently resisted that um, the whole 10 years, which may, of course, made it extremely difficult to be an entrepreneur mm. in that environment. Uh, but we started off doing tours. From doing tours, I have a godfather that had relocated um, to Ghana, Daruba Ben Wahad, and he was really, really good friends with Reggie Rockstone. Mm, uh, in mm-hmm. fact, he was managing Reggie Rockstone. And okay. so, 
got to meet Reggie and a lot of those cats and hang out with them. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to get back into the communications piece. And so I landed, you know, just by bumping around and doing uh, communications work, doing some real estate work um, for quite a few years, uh, specifically in the Jorlu Airport area, which was which was pretty decent because those homes were mostly for expats, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So we did okay doing that, but it was really when I once I got into to radio that my entrepreneurial chops really got got a hold because I I never I was a part of the team that opened up Y one hundred seven right YFM um, so yeah YFM we were there with uh, Miss Na and Eddie Blay and all of these cats we were part of the opening of that that radio station inside of the mall mm-hmm. and instead of asking them for pay, I asked them for airtime that I could then sell as a communicate, you know, being Mm. through my communication company. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how we began to sustain ourselves in a a decent way was that um, we would sell airtime to organizations and corporations that were looking to do business in in Accra and so, or in Ghana, Mm -hmm. you know, because YFM also spread out a bit. And so we... Uh, formed a, a communications company, and that was really where I, I really got the, the the meat of my entrepreneurial work uh, right. there in there in, in Ghana. Right, right, right. Yeah, I remember going to an event at the mall. I think it was yeah when Y when Y FM was just starting. There was a huge, beautiful bookstore. I think the studio was there, right? And then it now yeah, it's it moved. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, back in the day, back in the day. Back in the day. Well, you'll be happy. I mean, I'm sure you all, YFM is still around. Was it with Glody, was was it with Global Media Alliance at that time? Yep. Okay. Yep, so, Global Media Alliance. Are yep. they still the owners of yep. YFM? Yep, they yeah. still are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the brothers there, mm-hmm. they were really excited about Obama at that time. Obama was oh, just running right. for office for the first time. So we were able to, to connect around that. Mm-hmm. And the general manager at the time, Akwesi, people didn't, people in Ghana couldn't really wrap their mind around somebody like me, right? Like if mm-hmm. I was truly an alien to them in the truest sense of the word in that I was an American who had lived in Ghana long enough that I, a lot of the locals knew who I was. Mm-hmm. I had been there by that time, seven years. I had relationships with a lot of people inside of the industry. Like I said, Reggie Rockstone, Eddie Blay, and 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 that crew there. So all of those cats knew me already. And I wasn't trying to live like a foreigner mm-hmm. in Ghana. I was really, you know, living locally so to speak ate local foods didn't you know chopped fufu banku my my daughters spoke tree and some ga as well so it was a different relationship you know yeah. a lot of us when we come back there we're actually oftentimes trying to live like americans exactly. in africa yeah. right and so yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think there are, there are more Americans that are coming that are trying, but I think you you were definitely break broke out of the mold at that time because think about yeah. this, folks. You know, there wasn't as internet was okay back then. You had to go typically to an internet cafe. You didn't really have it at home Only. as much. That's yeah, right. so like communicating and all those things. So think about how people structure their lives to want to be like they're living in the U.S. when you had a very different experience. So very kudos, different. Kudos to you. So yeah, right on. 
Yeah. So as I kind of transition into where you are now, I want to ask your why the where. So we, we figured out how you got to Ghana and what happened there, but somehow you're not here anymore. So how did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently live? Yeah. So it came a point politically for me, to be honest with you. It was both a political and social reason why I decided to leave Ghana. Again, the entrepreneurial piece was extremely difficult in Ghana because as an African-American there, our network was tenuous at best. And we were very scattered throughout the Accra, Kumasi regions, Cape Coast regions, One Africa and, and, and those spaces there. But to be an entrepreneur, usually, for instance, you have a large Eastern Indian population in Ghana. You have a large Lebanese population. Mm -hmm. And these are communities that are within themselves can sustain themselves yep. through the businesses that they give each other. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was not true at the time when I was there. Therefore, it really made it difficult to be an entrepreneur in that environment. I saw it done in a couple ways. Uh, my good friend of mine named Marcus Mann had a chiropractic center mm -hmm. in Takarati and in Accra, uh, in the Accra area. And he did well, but his most of, uh, again, his wife was Ghanaian. We were, and that matters. Right. right? That matters when you're trying to get in, get networked. But I say all that to say that by 2010, the end of 2010, our children were older. We wanted to put them into school. They were, they were getting ready to move into what we call middle school here. In order for them to, to do that was going to be costly. And my parents and their uncles and aunts and nephew, they were all getting older and they didn't know who right. my children were at mm -hmm. all. And so there was this distancing that began to happen. And I had moved from being almost 29 to almost being 40. So I had become older as well and, you know, wanted to make sure that I connect with, connected as well. So there was a missing of family and an economic, I think the, the nail in the coffin for me for Ghana is when they quote unquote discovered oil off the coast. Mm. And then, you know, that never generally ends well when resources are found in mm. African countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and that combined with them naming the highway, the George Bush Highway, <laughs> which is exactly <laughs> the individual that harkened our exodus Departure, from the right. States. That's right. <laughs> like, man, we cannot get away from this dude. He's everywhere. You know, and so... You know, the, the political and social reasons then said, OK, it, it's, it might be time for a shift. And so we shift. I shifted back, spent a couple of years in Atlanta, spent spent about four or five years working in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then I returned home to Denver, okay. um, been here about seven years. OK. And then remarried someone that you went to high school with, uh, yeah. Danielle, mm -hmm. you know, and have been here ever since. Formed a nonprofit and really started doing this work in the social sphere. And just maybe a year later, the Black Lives Matter movement um, happened. The Tijan, uh, I mean, uh, the- um, Trayvon. The, the Trayvon Martin piece happened. And so it really became, we, we really saw an opportunity to, to provide the type of um, perspective to um, social movements and organizations that were looking to be in more in alignment with where the social temperature was going. And I've been here ever since for the last seven years doing exactly that. Okay. Okay. So 
you mentioned Costa Rica's filling home. <laughs> yes. I so, so, so tell us a little bit more about how that precipitated. Yeah. So during the COVID crisis, I did a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, just mm. it, would, it would almost seem anti. Yeah. Like, how know, did you get around? Yeah. yeah. Airplanes. Yeah. You know, I didn't care. <laughs> like for me, I was like, listen, I lived in Africa for 10 years. Like I yeah. wasn't really afraid of, you know, any type of virus or whatever, what have you. And, and as much as the hype that surrounded it was. So I got on many empty airplanes and traveled to places that I really wanted to be in, mm. which were warm places because I was missing mm-hmm. the warmth of, of Ghana. And so we traveled, I think, over to 17 different countries in Central America and the Caribbean. Wow. And then yeah, yeah, we were all over. We were all over Mexico, Barbados, um, St. Kitts, 16 different countries. Belize, which was in, in running for where we were going to ultimately land, Panama. Uh, so, yeah, we, we were all over the, the, these areas. And then I came to Costa Rica and was just absolutely floored by the immense beauty of the country as well as the mindset. And that was what was really important mm. for me is that I wanted to move to a country that not only was beautiful and tropical, et cetera, et cetera, nice, uh, as people would say, where the locals are nice, but I also wanted to move to a country that had a mindset of winning, mm. uh, so to speak, Right, a winning mindset, didn't see themselves lesser than imperial forces, didn't see themselves kowtowing to, you know, larger European and American forces and really had a self-pride about themselves on their own. And so Costa Rica really won over our hearts. We bought property there and decided to build a a healing uh, retreat center there. And that's that's what we're in the process of doing now. Wow, I love that. So tell us a little bit more about that experience of traveling during COVID to all these countries. Did you do a lot of land travel? Did you do mostly air travel? So how how did you curate that experience, given what was going on in in the world and in everyone's minds? Again, plane tickets were really cheap. Mm, Okay, And, you know, Travel was really, really easy. Airports were pretty empty. Empty, yeah, Um, that's true. And so, again, because I had got moving to Ghana had prepped me to be a world traveler. Because if you can travel intra Ghana, you could travel anywhere on the planet. And that's why Ghanaians, that's why you can find Ghanaians any and everywhere from the top to the bottom, China, Middle East, uh, Australia. You can find because. Ghanaians have a, a global perspective, but also because, listen, you're not going to put Ghanaians in a, a travel situation that's going to make them feel like, oh, wait, wait, what's going on here? Because it's it's a, many a rough roads and, right. and travel <laughs> is there, right? Resilience, yes. It's true. Very resilient. <laughs> Very resilient. So I was, yeah. I was unfazed with traveling during that time. And so mostly air travel, but a lot uh-huh. of uh, intra 
country travel to, okay. especially in Nicaragua and the Central Air Central uh, America spaces that are all connected on that peninsula. Sure. It's fairly easy to travel up and down that peninsula. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm, I have to come back to you on curating a, a like Central American tour because oh, yeah. that's one place oh, yeah. that I haven't really delved into. And so... I mean, I hear Costa Rica is beautiful. I love the idea of center. I really want to come and when it's when oh, it's open, I'm there. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, exactly. Without a doubt. So so then with that in mind, let's talk about Glocal Speak. So we want to hear what you hear in Costa Rica. Maybe not so much Denver, but Costa Rica. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as Glocal Speak. Oh, I love that. So... Going back to the whole mindset piece, the the theme phrase for Costa Ricans is pura vida, which oh, okay. means pure life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And pure life means to live in a clean way, and to live in a clean way means to function in all of your relations in a clean way, your relationship with Earth. Uh, Costa Rica mm-hmm. is one of five green zones, uh, blue zones on the planet, meaning that there's more oxygen per square mile. That country is probably the most progressive country in the world as far as I think you can only build on like 10 percent of the land inside of Costa Rica. The rest of it is forest reserves. So Pura Vida really captures this relationship of human beings with the planet, with the animals, with the water, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And so that relationship uh, is captured in Pura Vida, living a pure life. Mm. That uh, the local or yes, the local animal and the animal that serves as the symbol for Costa Rica is the sloth. A sloth, like the slow moving sloth? sloth. Okay. The slow moving sloth. Uh-huh. And I I would have never thought that any country football team basketball would ever choose the sloth as their symbol. <laughs> right? It's just not right. a really sexy animal to, you know, at all, at all right? <laughs> and so I, it wasn't until maybe like my third or fourth trip there, I had an opportunity to sit down with the elder and he told me the reason why the sloth is so important to us as a people is exactly part of probably the biggest lesson that I learned for myself living in Ghana. And that is to move slow, to be patient. Mm, mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. If you cannot live in Ghana. It's and I lived in mm-hmm. Takarati 30 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. You cannot live in Ghana without patience. Especially if you're coming from the United States where you're used to things happening at a much faster speed. My time in Ghana taught me patience above all and everything else. And it has served me tremendously throughout my lifetime. And now to come back to a country whose symbol is a sloth and who they themselves value being very meticulous, methodical, and strategic about the movements that you're making for yourself internally and externally in life Mm. and how important it is to be mindful of how you move and to be diligent and patient 
and strategic in how you move. And from that moment, I just saw the sloth in a completely, totally different way. It 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 really shape shifted my mind and harkened me back to a lot of the lessons that I learned there mm-hmm. in Ghana that started sure. my trip. And sure, so, yeah. Um, I'd have to agree, yeah. and I, 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 my mind has shifted now that you've described the sloth, and you know, everyone is like, "Oh, it's a sloth. It's just this thing. It's just." But that you that, that's very thoughtful, as you said, strategic to prepare people's mindsets for like we are, particularly for a country, right? That takes such pride in this. This I never heard of a blue zone, and so the oxygen is better there and they're mindful about the oxygen and they're mindful about the rainforest. So living there is a Pura Vida life. So yeah, yeah, I get it. Absolutely get it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's when I knew, okay, this could be my, this could be a home for me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. This could be a home for me. So I want to start with going back to business and Mm -hmm. drilling down on how you acquire property there, like what the, what the process is in terms of starting a business there and then go back into your work with the center in Denver. So tell us yeah. about how, you know, registering a business or even just starting with the property, getting on the property ladder in Costa Rica, like what were, how did you approach it? What were some of the challenges? Well, see, Ghana had prepared me mm. for all of this. Mm-hmm. Being a land owner and buying property in Ghana and seeing how many people lost property in Ghana and seeing the countryside littered with half-built homes and mm-hmm. from from land disputes and family disputes over land, et cetera, et cetera. So I was a lot more patient in purchasing land in Costa Rica than I would have been had I not had my Ghanaian chops already put into place. So the process is, is, is a lot more simple and it's, uh, it's a lot more streamlined, but again, you do have to be patient. Mm -hmm. Um, We took over a year and a half looking for the right property. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the First things that I did was to hire a lawyer to represent my interest in the purchasing of that property. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I would have thought to do back in Ghana, unfortunately. <laughs> but yes, so hiring a lawyer to, to go through the process, doing the proper checks, making sure that um, all of those, those, those pieces are in place. Fortunately, I have family members who spend about six to eight months out of the year in Costa Rica oh, okay. in the area that we're... So, I also have eyes and ears on the ground, too, sure. which I, I always, you know, you, you can't overvalue having someone representing your interest while you're gone. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so that's been highly, highly beneficial to the process as well. But it, it's pretty straightforward and simple, especially once you have a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, which we do. Uh, representing our interest. And she's fantastic. Uh, she, you know, she. She speaks both languages. She's a local there and, and really tied into the people and the culture, knows the landscape, et cetera, et cetera. So Got it. I, I would, for anybody who's buying property as an expat, I would always encourage them to do so with, with, with lawyers. Yeah, that's good advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because, yeah, they'll always know, you know, the system and, and be able to yep. kind of flag down things. So, yeah, I would agree with that. That's right. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Okay, so then now you're you're building on in Costa Rica what you start what you've already built in Denver. So yeah. you're, you're you're known on on the streets of Denver as an activist, and yeah. so you and you you kind of gave a little bit of background on how that 
you know, precipitated. But let us understand a little bit more about the mindset from the business side, because you started a not-for-profit and you are the product in a lot of ways. And so tell us more about how you translated your, you know, entrepreneurial self that was a jack of many trades, but, you know, you definitely had the craft and the communication space into this kind of really, you know, active presence that is doing a lot of, you know, I read on your site something about grass tops, not grass roots. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, One of the things that is immediately recognized from coming from a family of activists is we as community organizers can always fall into the trap of we can get deep into fighting against that we never take the time to create the world that we actually want to see. Mm, mm-hmm. So we, we spend a lot of time fighting against the injustices in the world that we often neglect putting into to place the world or envisioning even the world that we want to see. And so I'm highly driven by a quote by Buckmeister Fuller, who says that you never defeat a system by fighting against that system. What you do is you create an alternative system that renders the system that you're, you would fight against obsolete. Mm-hmm. And that when I heard that, I was like, yes, yes, like It's not enough to be anti, you have to be for, right? Mm. And so I moved out of the space of being anti and moved into the space of being for. So I am for holistic systems of healing. I am for educated education that is rooted in cultural, historical, spiritual relevancy and, and culture. I am for harmonious relationships between man, woman, and earth. I'm for these things. And so when we got very clear about what we were for, it shifted how we were organizing in communities Mm. um, where we, and that is how the healing center came about, right? Is that many of us, again, in the activist community are really carriers of the very illnesses that we're seeking to fight. Mm. Meaning Mm. that, we can go we are a product of what it is that we're actually going against so even if we got even if we managed to get what we were fighting for we would merely reproduce it because we haven't extricated ourselves mentally socially spiritually from the very systems that we were fighting against and so we would just replicate the plantation uh, even if we got rid of the the master yeah and again, I, my first taste of seeing that was in Ghana uh, amongst African-Americans that would come over and behave in such a way as we were treated mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. Right. We mm-hmm. become that. Yeah. Um, because we don't we haven't we haven't taken the time to reimagine relationships outside of the power dynamics that were created uh, and that we experienced ourselves. And so from from that perspective, it fueled how we looked at entrepreneurism. And so in doing our DEI work, we go into organizations and make sure that there is an equity lens on everything that they're looking to do not just looking at an equality lens and Mm. not just looking at 
the organization as a as as an entity, but looking at the individuals that make up the organization because an organization or a system is only going to be as healthy as the individuals that make up that system. So you can't expect to have a DEI organization if people inside of the organization don't understand what equity is, don't value equity. They themselves aren't believers in or understand what equity is. And so our approach came to be very unique and very sought after uh, very quickly. Uh, So we, Mm. we were an organization from the time from four years ago, we were an organization of five to an organization now of over 23 people Mm. that do the consultant side of the work and the community side of the work combined. And we're looking to, to, to hire another, I think four people by the end of this year. So by early, by January, we will we'll be an organization of over 30. And that will continue to increase as we open up the healing center in Costa Rica, which will then give us an international presence. And then we, we will be way up well above over 50 when we open the center of June and July, June or July next year. So that is my pathway into entrepreneurialism and and the way that we approach the work that that we're doing. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it because it's true, and I I think of that a lot when I I've been having these conversations about this leadership deficit that we are facing globally, and where are those leaders coming from? How are we going to identify them out of you know these young people who are being bombarded with a lot of content, a lot of conversations that are just not bringing them out of this you know milling circle around all of this like yeah. nonsense conversation and yeah. so so that you've envisioned it and then that you're actualizing it in an actual physical space because i think that's yeah. also very important that you have a place where people can go to and focusing it a lot on the healing because so much of why people are at these disadvantaged places is because they are disassociated with themselves yes as their as the self and yes. so so when you go into organizations, but let's say particularly like institutions, right? Like corporates and, you know, governments. How are you finding the, I want to say the long-term sustainable impacts of your work? You know, like I know oftentimes they just have this much money, they're just doing this, but are you seeing that there's a real shift that is truly, you know, sustaining and that we're going to actually see that our kids are going to have parents that now treat them differently and then they'll be different? Great question. So here's the thing. I only see that individuals and organizations, as well as countries, only change when they can see their self-interest tied up in the benefits of what that change would be. Mm -hmm. More and more organizations in the United States are recognizing that they are operating in a global environment. In operating in a global environment, then you must recognize that in order to operate most effectively in a global environment, it is best to do so without prejudices or biases with people in which you are engaging with. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. if your competitors pick up on, they're going to go with people. People do business with people that they, they know, they like, and they trust, period, who they know, they like, and they trust. If 
people don't feel that you know them or you like them, they won't trust you and thus they will not do business with you. And so there are many countries that are ahead of the game with in, in, in the global market, many European countries that are ahead of the game in the global market simply because they do not have the implicit biases around race, around gender, around, right? For instance, many African countries, like many European countries, have had female leaders. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at the very top of the right. country that have run the country. America still in 2022 has yet to elect a female woman who is at the head of its country. When I was in in Ghana, Liberia had just elected their first female woman leader. Mm -hmm. And that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so though it's already in those mindsets, there's a progressiveness that exists that must be taken up by American companies if they hope to exist and sustain themselves in the global marketplace. If not, people have other places that they can easily go to and will go to. And so oftentimes, the way that we get through the door and the way that we're able to speak to the leaders of these organizations is merely based upon their own economic Mm self-interest in that it will help. You will be a better business person if you don't carry implicit bias with you into the boardrooms, into the negotiating rooms, into the countries, into the environments in which you're looking to do business to not do it is to is at your own peril. And so that's their self-interest wrapped up into it that allows them to want to be better businesses as and and part of being a better business person in, in the global sense in which the way that we are viewing the world means to be a better person and to be a better person means to be rid, rid of implicit biases, racism, sexism and, and, and the rest that comes along with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a great kind of link to mindset, right? So I have my mindset hack question. So I I want to know, we want to know what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you imagine, one that you practice, or one that you just simply know of. One of my favorite quotes is by Marcus Aurelius, funny enough. And he says, and I use this a lot in business and in my social environment, the obstacle becomes the way. Mm. And so as a mindset hack, a lot of times when a problem presents itself in our lives, whether that be in our social lives or in our work life, we seek to how to get around the problem right? How to navigate around the problem. And even before that, we are at best upset about the fact that there's problems in the first place, right? Many of us don't want no problems, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, and, and live a life of false expectancy that, you, that problems shouldn't exist. There's a problem that there's problems. I don't <laughs> think that yeah. in that way. Right. If you really think about it, especially from an entrepreneurial perspective, problems are 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 what we are in the business of. Mm -hmm. 
all products and services on some certain level are seeking to alleviate a problem. So when a problem comes to the fore, there's an opportunity there because if it's a problem that's coming to you, then it's a pro- it may be a problem that's coming to other people. And if you solve the problem for yourself, you can be the conduit in which you are solving the problem for other people. And that's what business is predicated on, solving problems. And so when the when, with the saying the obstacle becomes the way, I oftentimes look for the learning inside of the challenge and then seeing, can we take that learning and market it and or teach it, the solution to it inside of communities or inside of companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that mindset of the obstacle becoming the way is often, it helps us to reinterpret in very real time what others consider negative experiences in such a way that they become enlightening opportunities, both on a uh, on a, a spiritual, social level and on a entrepreneurial business level. Beautifully put. I love that. Yeah, that's that hit the whatever the nail on the head. <laughs> There you go. Got yeah, it. yeah, because that, yeah, that is the, and yeah, just the way that you definitely express that is, yes, it is the way. And like to to take that path means that you are actually, you know, using your mindset to to step it up, to re reimagine. You know, I just spoke with another guest, and she was talking about stories, right? So we have to create the new story. You know, That's you, right. you step into a new story, and then it is it is that that it is. And That's so, right. yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So I want to ask a little bit more about your work in schools. Yeah. Because I know you have some really interesting programs at schools and educators. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. So when I returned back to America after leaving Ghana, I went to my father, who I had not seen, uh, I think just once in those 10 years that I was gone, and he handed me a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle mm-hmm. Alexander. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he gave me the mission. This is the, like, you need to read this book. This is what's going on. Almost like a, since you've been gone, mm-hmm. right? And now that you're back, you need to get up on this. Mm-hmm. And I read it and I was really struck by what I was, the contextualization that Michelle, uh, Dr. Alexander provided in that book was just mind blowing. But it also let me led me to see and understand that the criminalization of black, brown, Afro-Indigenous bodies happen inside of the school buildings. Mm, That mm. is where the prison pipeline begins, is inside. The criminalization of the black, brown, Afro-Indigenous body happens inside of a classroom. It does not happen out on the streets. It does not happen And it doesn't start once they get to jail, right? Like there's a pathway to jail and that's the schools and no one ever really thinks of it in in those terms. But that is exactly where the criminalization begins. Both the internal mindsets that we develop to see ourselves as criminal and where the criminal enterprise itself is initiated of the prison system, the for-profit prison system, which is what we have here in the United States. And so we formed an organization called Breaking Our Chains, which was put in place to educate people about this system 
and to advocate for those who were getting caught up in that system and then ultimately to shift it. But as I had mentioned, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we did not just want to sit in the space where we were fighting against the schools that exist now. We wanted to create a different system of schooling for our children and our communities. And that is where we came came up with Freedom Schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of you who, who, who would like to research it, Freedom Schools started in America back in the uh, 1900s, uh, the early 1900s, 1920s, a- as a response to uh, white terrorism that was happening in black communities. They were reinstituted again in the late 60s, early 70s by uh, the civil rights uh, movement and the black power movement that that succeeded it. And Freedom Schools is predicated on the idea that we must be and become the first educators of our children before we turn them over into the world. Mm-hmm. And if, if we continue to allow the world to have their their hands on our children first, then we can continue to expect the outcomes that we are currently and we're currently experiencing. And so freedom schools are a place where children get to learn about who they are, what their history is, how to address challenges. So we we provide a cultural context to their learning as well as a historical uh, and social context to their learning that will then allow them to go out into the world as different beings, ones that can hold their heads up high, ones that are, are have a certain level of confidence already built in because they, they know that they are capable because their people are capable and they come from a people who are capable mm-hmm. uh, of, of participating in, in the global context. And so uh, we've been doing Freedom Schools now for about seven years. Danielle just uh, took over as the principal of uh, of our freedom school system, and she got her first principalship inside of public education. So she's wearing two hats right now, which is what most of us have to do, right? Yes. We have to do an inside and an outside job, right? We got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We, we're, you know, that 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 is the situation, and and we're talented enough to be able to do it as yes. long as we continue to take care of ourselves in such a way that allows it to be sustainable. And yeah. so I say all that to say that that is what the education piece, that's the trajectory that that we went on and, and where we are now. Sure. Decolonizing yeah. education. That is it. Decolonizing education. Yeah, yeah. And it needs to, I mean, I, and I say that because the same thing that you're describing may not be the criminal system yeah. in Ghana or in, a, in the U.S., but it's the same system yeah. that is is creating disempowerment all over Africa because we don't own our education. And that's my business, right? I'm making sure that these kids know in their first language who they are, right? Instead of going to school and learning English, they need to be learning who they are in their own language, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. Yeah, I love it. That's right. And it cannot be underscored how important that work is. Mm -hmm. It's important that our children, you saying that gave me goosebumps because it's absolutely essential to the building, and you said it at the earlier the earlier part of the of the podcast. It's essential in, in the building of the self, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm it, I'm really happy to hear that, and know that you're you're engaged in in that type of work. And I I, I really one of the, my biggest sufferings when I was in Ghana, and one of the reasons why I ultimately chose to leave is because I did not want to put my children inside of that educational system because I saw it as part and parcel of the global miseducation of Afro-Indigenous people. And Mm -hmm. so 
it's the system that's existing in Ghana and Africa overall is part and parcel of the one that's happening here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we're doing the work. Yes, I love it. We're doing I'm the work. We're doing yeah. the work. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing the work. Yeah. So um, we know you. We've heard all about your, your work in, in being, you know, this community organizer and trailblazer. And who is the Sarah when he's not working? So I like to ask a question. Are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Are you a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens or other pastimes? I'm all of the above. Mm -hmm. I'm a reader. I'm a watcher and I'm a listener. I'm a a reader of almost all all types of materials. I I read a lot of self development, positive psychology books. Mm-hmm. I just finished uh, rereading this weekend, this past weekend, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, mm-hmm. uh, which I would absolutely recommend to, to all of your listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a very powerful book. And as Toni Morrison is by far one of my favorite writers, yeah. um, she's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I am listening to a couple of books on Audible, which is why it's kind of listened to. Yeah. Read. Yeah. Like I'm with you. Thing. I'm an Audible girl I'm, too. I, I have yeah, a book. No, I usually have a book and an Audible going at the same time. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and that's the way that I, I, you know, I enjoy learning and, and assimilating the information best is that that exact way. And so, mm-hmm. so since finishing her book, I've moved on to uh, Stickman's book, uh, Five uh, the Five Principles, which is uh, Stickman was the second half of a, a hip hop group called Dead Prez, which was really big in the late '90s, 2000s. Very um, African centered, Afrocentric, positive psychology. The dude, one part of that group, his name is Stick. He he he's put out a book. I think it came out on the 18th. That was um, hot off the presses. Hot off the, oh yeah, it's, it's fresh. Mm-hmm. It's fresh. And his, yeah, it's, it's called The Five Principles. And I'm also uh, reading this book called You Are the Best Thing, mm-hmm. uh, done by this uh, Tarana Burke, who's the sister that started the, the Me Too movement. Didn't get credit for it, but she's a, a social activist out of um, New York. Mm-hmm. And Brene Brown co- co-wrote that book together. It's a collection of 20, uh, maybe about 15, 20 writers uh, who all wrote essays on uh, Black resilience, Afro-Indigenous resilience. And I've really, um, I'm about three chapters into that one. So that's what I'm I'm reading slash listening to. I'm watching currently, I, I'm a big documentary watcher. I, I rarely, I rarely watch fictionized um, material. I, I much rather look into people's lives in real time in the real world. And so uh, Toni Morrison also has a, has a documentary on Netflix. Um, oh, really? Oprah's, yeah. Oprah's okay. in it. Quite a, quite a few people are in it. Just very, very, very powerful. Uh, so that's currently what I'm watching on on television when I do watch. Okay, okay. Those are yeah. all very good reading and watching suggestions, which will be in the show notes, folks. We're going to have really rich show notes, as always, so be sure to check awesome. us out then. So before we take your last thoughts for, for this time we have together, can you tell us where we can find you and where we can find your work? Ooh, we, I need a, so you definitely have to go to the show notes for this. So <laughs> okay. I, I would assume that you probably have listeners both in America and there in Ghana. All over the world. Mm-hmm. All over the world. I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So if you go on my friend, a lot of my Ghanaian brothers and sisters um, connect with me through Facebook. Okay. I'm also on Instagram. Okay. Sojourner 
life on on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And Sojourner, of course, is picking up uh, a play on words of Sojourner mm-hmm. Truth, but mm-hmm. also on journeying and traveling where the soul, where your soul takes you. Yeah. I like that. And so you can also find me on the various websites that, that yes. we have our company. So there's for the DEI and consultant works that we do. You can fi- find us on www.righteousrageconsulting.org. You can find our social work at www.righteousrageinstitute.org. And I will make sure that you uh, will we'll have all of the, the, the website links. information. Yes. Yeah, all the link. Sure. All we'll have links. and they'll be in the show notes yeah. as always, guys. Yeah. So Hasera, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Th- I have to say that. And it's just it's been so lovely getting to back in connections. That's why I love these conversations because I'm like unco- uncovering all of my old a lot of old friends and I'm like I love it. Yeah. Because everyone's doing so such you, awesome work. I wouldn't want to leave this podcast without relaying a story about you okay. that I have. Uh-huh. I think it goes to the whole conversation that we've been having because I knew you and your sister in in high school. Right. And knowing you both in high school, living in Denver and going to high school at East, you were you and your sister were one of the most brown people in our environment, in our high school. Mm-hmm. However, you carried yourself different. There was always something like you, you and your sister carried, always carried yourself like you were royalty uh, mm. in a sense that dark skinned girls, brown skinned girls in the United States don't generally do because that's for the exact same reason that you're doing the work that you're doing in Ghana and I'm doing the work that I am here. They've internalized the messages and the uh, the harmful messages around who they are and what they're capable of and what beautiful is. Mm. I'm not assuming that you didn't have your own struggles around that. I'm only intimating that it was clear that something was put into you. You had something around uh, very prideful, very stately in how you move. I told your sister this when I saw her uh, a, a few months ago, just the regalness. There's a regalness. That's the word I'm looking for. There's oh, a regalness you. that you both carry yourself with that it's striking in an environment like Denver, Colorado, where you're supposed to be carrying your head a little lower. You're right. supposed to, you know, not be as confident. And so I just want to take this moment to really thank you and the people who poured into you to make sure that you had something that most of us who are just here don't have. And so um, thank you for, for being the standard bearer around Black, beautiful womanhood. Oh, thank you. And I, I have to yeah. thank my mother because you know, I, will, I, will, I will be honest, you know, growing up, I mean, by, by high school, whatever, it was done. But I remember in you know grade school, we got the all the negatives, you know, and it was just like, Had why, to. why, yeah. why? My mom was like, you hold your head up. You don't listen to those people. And that was it. You know, so we trusted, trusting my mother and, yeah. and, and her, because if you, if you see my, my mother is five, five, maybe five, four, five, five. But if you see her walk, everyone say, your mom, she's this. And she just walks <laughs> like a queen. So, hey, that's what I'm going to do, too. <laughs> that's right. You had a great teacher. You, yeah. And that's, and that's exactly, you yeah. Had somebody pouring that energy into you. 
Yeah. And it matters. It matters. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So folks, thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So that's Apple that's Google, that's Amazon, that's Spotify. I always say this, you get the drift, just go get it and share and subscribe and like and all that good stuff. So until next time, folks, bye for now.